0: The very low interest rates are like sort of fertilizer, and they over-fertilize the environment and lead to sort of, in a way, a weak and fragile ecosystem. I discuss in the chapter on creative destruction a metaphor that's quite commonly used of how the central bankers, when they prevent the process of creative destruction, they're a bit like the U.S. Forest Service that prevents forest fires, and in the end, you get, you know, buildup of understory and and so forth and until eventually you get more fires and more severe fires as, as a consequence and, and, and a less healthy forest.
1: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged. The place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind.
2: For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary people from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Kevin Coldine to host a series of in-depth conversations to help uncover and explain new ideas to make you a better investor. In the series, Kevin will be speaking to authors of new books and research papers to better understand the global economy and the dynamics that shape it so that we can all successfully navigate the challenges within it. And with that, please welcome Kevin Coldiron.
3: All right. uh, Thank you, Niels, and welcome, everyone, to episode number six of the Ideas Lab series. I'd like to start this one by reading a quote. Our earth is degenerate these days. Bribery and corruption are common. Children no longer obey their parents. Every man wants to write a book, and the end of the world is approaching. Um, Could have been taken from the Wall Street Journal editorial pages, but it's not. It's uh, from an Assyrian tablet written 2,800 years ago, and it's one of the many anecdotes that enliven the book that we're going to discuss today and i like it because it connects us to our past it reminds us reminded me anyway that the problems we're facing today are at their core not new uh they've been faced repeatedly by human societies and and solved um by human societies as well so the person who's going to help us think about and frame i guess if you will the modern versions of some of those issues today is our guest edward chancellor Um, he is a financial historian he's journalist he's also worked as an investment strategist Um, he's worked in investment banking for lazard brothers as well as investment management um, as an asset allocation strategist for gmo many of you will have read his works that he's published in the ft the wall street journal money week among others Um, and he's currently a columnist for reuters breaking views um in 1999 i believe if i got that right he published devil take the hindmost which is a it's on my bookshelf behind me it's a it's an award-winning book on kind of the history of financial speculation and we're here today to talk about his latest book which was just published um, in both the uk and the us called the price Of time the real story of interest so edward chancellor (laughs) welcome to the ideas lab
0: Uh, please be with you kevin
3: um so early on in the book you tell a story about an experiment that uh happened in stanford in the 1960s called the marshmallow experiment uh, experiment and uh, they got a group of kids together and they said okay you can have one marshmallow now Or you can defer consumption and get two marshmallows in 15 minutes. And about two-thirds of the kids took the marshmallow. Now, and about a third um, waited. I'm guessing that you are a two-marshmallow guy. And the reason I'm guessing that is because it must have taken you an enormous amount of time and patience to put this book together. I mean, just because I'm somewhat of a nerd, I counted up all the end notes and it was 1,241, um, just the the amount of work really comes through the pages. So I was hoping maybe you could start off by just telling us about your process. I mean, how how long had you worked on the book? Um, how did you manage to do it while holding down full-time jobs along the way?
0: Well, you mentioned the book I published in 99 called Devil Take the High Mist, History of Financial Speculation. And that was written sort of at the time of the, when the dot-com bubble was going on. And I suppose um, when I was thinking about speculation, I was perhaps uh, quite entranced by the sort of contemporary vogue for behavioral finance and the sort of psychology of investment and investment manias sort of in the same, in the same vein of looking at, uh, intellectual vein of looking at speculative manias from a sort of crowd mania perspective, goes back to Charles Mackay in the eighteen forties, and after I finished the book, I went. <laughs> I was. I was at a. I was at a conference in New York in I think ni- late 99, nine two thousand, and uh, Doctor Henry Kaufman of formerly of Salomon Brothers was there. Doctor Dr. Doom, right? Doctor Doom and Kaufman started talking about the role of. Interest in and and the Federal Reserve's manipulation of of the Fed funds rate in the late stages, if you remember, after the collapse of the long-term capital management um, in 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 September 1998, and how the Fed cut rates, supplied liquidity to the markets, and then you got the sort of final leg up of the dot-com boom. And I started to think then about. The sort of monetary aspects of speculative manias, and a couple, then then we had the dot com bust, and the Fed, as as you remember, you know, put its uh, foot on the gas pedal once again, took Fed funds rate down to one percent, and we got a sort of global credit boom. And I was then commissioned at the time by a London hedge fund manager called Chris Binotti to to write a report on the global credit boom which um, came out a sort of specialist report called crunch time for credit which we published in 2005 um, and then I was doing you know then I was doing journalism in New York and went to work for GMO in Boston uh, during the during the global financial crisis and after the global financial crisis interest rates went down even lower and um, I was working the asset allocation group team and we kept on thinking that interest rates were going to, to come up again and they weren't coming up. I initially belonged to that sort of school that thought that inflation was going to come with all the QE mm-hmm. and it didn't come. and um, I was working with my assistant who you, who's also your co-author, uh, Jamie Lee and we Jamie and I started we did a sort of uh, interest rate project. Uh, a long-term interest rate project because at GMA we kept on getting <laughs> forecasting, yes. making poor forecasts right. <laughs> uh, for uh, for the direction of long-term interest rates, and um, then I then I, and, then, and so Jamie and I made sort of certain headway I think on, on that project. I mean, one of the things we found, which uh, is that. Interest rates are not mean reverting. You know, if you, if you, if you're an equity guy, and and the asset allocation team was sort of mainly equity, we sort of worked with mean reverting models. But uh, the guy, you know, we also had completely erroneous mean reverting models for um, for for bonds, and um, so you know then you know. I realized our models were, you know, they were worse than a stop clock. They were one, they were right at once every forty years, uh, which is really is not good <laughs> enough. So I, 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 um, began to understand, you know, these long bond cycles, and mm-hmm. then we were also, if you remember at the time, just after the global financial crisis, the, the, the um, financial markets came back in 2009 very strongly, not just equity markets, but also capital flows into uh, emerging markets. And also, if you will, carry trading into the domestic financial markets, which is what you, Jamie, and Jamie's dad, Tim Lee, wrote about in your book, The Rise of Carry Trade. And um, so that was sort of where I was at. And then um, I came back, we decided to relocate to England and I left GMO and go back to full-time writing. And I I was with a friend of mine who is the chief investment officer of a of a London uh, investment firm called Ruther, also asset allocation business, a guy called Henry Maxey. And I said to him, you know, a decade ago, I was, you know, sitting with Crispin Odie and Crispin was saying, it's all about credit. And I said, yeah, it's all about credit. <laughs> And now it seems to me it's all about interest rates that so through the prism of the interest rate you can begin to understand all the extraordinary low interest rates of the last decade I'm talking you know this is 2015 when the conversation took place that you could you could sort of have a sort of holistic picture of both what was happening in the financial world um, in uh, the broader economy. And to some extent, you could begin to understand where some of the roots of sort of popular discontent were coming from. So, so, And there was one other aspect to it is, uh, you probably know that Jamie and I also did a lot of work on China at the time. And I probably divided uh, and and we uh, became sort of entranced and fixated on the... um, incredible credit boom that was going on in China the epic real estate boom and the accompanying investment boom so the the credit boom the the, the property bubble and the investment boom were together the sort of the greatest <laughs> the greatest booms I had ever come across in history and I was thinking of writing a book on China actually in the end I'm not really a China specialist I'm not a cynophile. But you could explain a lot about what was going on in China as an outsider through the perspective, again, of the interest rates and the monetary policy. So uh, it, it seemed to me that that was a um, a project that was worth undertaking. There was a, another aspect to it, uh, which is back, back by um, when I was doing my work on the sort of credit boom, I came to... I came to realize, I came to the belief that the that the central banks, by fixating solely on short-term inflation and allowing that to be the guide to the to to where they set the interest rate, uh, that that was creating the conditions in a low inflation environment for these speculative and credit bubbles. So, so that's the sort of the uh, the the position I find myself in, and then. You know, from a work perspective, um, I had, to, you know, I then had found myself reading both the sort of, uh, both the history of interest and the uh, the history of economic thought about interest, you know, which takes you into some, you know, really uh, in earlier periods, uh, all great economists uh, would think about what interest Was what it did, what it reflected, and it seemed to me that the question of interest had was no longer of, let's say, much interest to the uh, (laughs) to the contemporary economists. And and as it had ceased to be an interest, and as and and you're, I don't want to be, I'm a historian by training, not an economist. Um, But it, it, you know, I had this feeling that uh, many contemporary economists, academic economists, don't really read. Enough of the economic, uh, the the history of economic thought, and therefore they deprive themselves of the rich insights of earlier writers on interest.
3: Yeah, and I was, uh, I'm going off script here because I kind of wanted to end our conversation with the question about that, but since you brought it up, I'll I'll ask it now, which is, why do you think that's the case? I mean, what what is it about the you know temporary policymakers where they they don't have that kind of curiosity about history in the same way and it's funny because say someone like ben bernanke is an economic historian and and i guess he he looked at history and took some lessons but i i don't get the sense that people have that kind of willingness to look back at history and, and use the experiences of the past to inform decisions is it that do you think people just like, oh, well, this time is different, the world has changed, or is it, hey, we just have to act now, and um, you know, we can think about broader lessons later? Why do you think that is?
0: Well, look, you you de- teach economics, and an, yes. I, I don't, so you 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 probably have a better idea of the answer to your question than I do. But the way I see it is this: is that the economists are under uh, the under possibly a misapprehension that their subject is a science, and that once a question has been addressed and so to be solved, you no longer need to think or re-examine that question. Um, and uh, if you if you consider your, your your subject to be a science, then the the history of the development of that science is a, a sort of second is a minor consideration. Yeah. Um, and so you you're constantly sort of lifting up the the ladder behind you <laughs> as you, as you <laughs> scale higher. and, and, and um, so I think and I think and tell me if I've got this wrong, but I understand they have sort of downgraded the teaching of both economic history and the history of economic thought in the academic departments. The other thing, I think is, is there is this drive to make everything, um, to, to make everything comprehensible within a, an economic model, a, a, a mathematical model, and that th- economic economic history and the ideas of earlier communists are often not tractable to models. Say, so for instance, I, I realised when I wrote this report on the credit boom back in 2004, I, I actually leaned quite heavily on Hyman Minsky Right. and a bit on Hayek. And I went to, see, I was in New York shortly after i f- finished the report, um, and I saw uh, an, another uh, uh, old sort of uh, distinguished uh, Wall Street economist called Al Vojnilova. Have you ever come across? I, I have the, not, no. So Al Vojnilova was a Credit Suisse, and he was the he was the Doctor gloomed to Henry Kaufman's Doctor Doom, <laughs> and between in the seventies, they were the they were the most. Just, you know, it must have been a lot name. of fun
3: to go out for drinks with those guys.
0: <laughs> uh, and no, he, he's 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 a, he's a charming fellow, uh, and he he a, a very good economist. Anyhow, so I said, "Well, why does no one why does no one pay attention to to, to Minsky?" Uh, and he said, "Oh, he's difficult to model." Now, if you remember. And then said same about Hayek, and then uh, then you had the crash, and the almost, almost the first thing <laughs> that happened with with the with the subprime crisis is everyone started sort of, you know, Minsky was the man of the moment, uh, you know. Having yeah, he, he, I'm not even sure is that difficult to model. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a modeler, but I can sort of imagine how you could make a sort of fairly decent Minsky model. Anyhow, so and so it's this sort of it's the desire to make economics uh, to, to, the 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 illusion that you're dealing with a, a hard, hard science rather than a social science and the desire to make uh to make your understanding tractable through a model that i think um makes people t- tend to sort of forget uh forget economic history but also um you know which seems to be much more serious is to is to ignore the um you know the, the 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 think the past economic th- thinkers. Um, so that that's my thought. Yeah,
3: here. I I really like that that kind of visual of pulling up the ladder. You know, once you once you've reached a, a higher um, spot, and I, I think about that a lot with the notion of bank runs, right? Because you sort of felt like, well, we'd solved that problem, right? And if you're sitting in two thousand four or five, you say, well, the, the, we you know we. have there are no more bank runs, and of course, there, there were. It's just the banking system had shifted from, you know, from kind of regulated banks to to shadow banks. That's where the credit is created, and bank runs are still a problem. In fact, they're a worse problem because we've now created a kind of a market-based credit system that that that's much more liquid. Um, I, so I will. You kind of I think answered partly, but I was I had another kind of process question for you, which is you know you, you the book's called the price of time um so that's kind of i you know gives away how you think of interest but there's there's many and you say that at the beginning of the book there's many different ways to think about interest it's a complex subject there's risk there's relative balance of power there's even notions of kind of insurance in there and i guess my question was did you start off your work as a kind of a journey of exploration in the sense, was it like, hey, there's lots of different ways to think about interest. I wonder which one is right. Or was it, hey, interest is the price of time and I'm going to kind of collect evidence to to prove that's the case. H- how did you approach it? Or, or neither one of those, maybe.
0: I um, so I think how I, pre- I'm mean, given that my, you know, m- my strongest specialities in the field, of to bubbles and manias that I suppose the area I understood best starting out on the project was the, um, the relationship between uh, monetary policy and asset price bubbles, which is uh, a theme that goes through the book, as you know, um, really starting uh, in detail with, with John Law and the Mississippi bubble of of 1719, 1720, running up to the current day. So I suppose that was my my presupposition. And then uh, as I read more um, broadly on the subject, I became interested in the other facets of interest or or other roles that interest seems to be uh, most important. Um, namely, the the allocation of capital, um, and and the, there is this um, as I mentioned, you, know, you go into the nineteenth century. There are two two strands of 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 economic thinkers talking. Uh, the, both the Austrian school, um, I think it's um, Karl Menger and uh, Eugen von Bemberg, the Austrians, the early Austrians, who talk about how interest affects the amount of capital that will be tied up for a period of time and they talk about sort of that as the interest rate falls uh, businesses will engage in what they would call they called more roundabout methods of production and in principle that would improve productivity but you can have too much of a good thing and you could um, if you took the interest rate down to a certain level you would get uh, a um, you would get, if you will, a misallocation of capital. But that idea was uh, also arrived at uh, independently by the English economist W.S. Jevons, who said more or less exactly the same thing. So that role of interest in um, in in capital, in the allocation of capital, and how the low interest rate can lead to what the Austrians call malinvestment, um, it w- w- Became you know, quite quite an interesting and to me quite rich uh, area of of research. And one of the things I point out in the book is that you know a lot of focus in the sort of conventional narratives on the Great Depression on the very high real interest rates of the Great Depression period, when you know due to the um, although nominal interest rates were low. Um, the you know the, the the deflation led to high real rates of interest, um, but it was followed by, a, a, if you will, a, a sort of a, a cleansing of the industrial processes uh, processes in 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 the U.S. and very strong productivity growth in the aftermath. And so, people tend to overlook the fact that the that the U.S. actually Returned uh, in what I I think roughly a decade and a half back to its ch- trend GDP growth, and you know, I think I mentioned some in the book, and I'm sure you're familiar with the, with the Chicago economist. What's he called? Victor Karnovitz, the who, who has this idea as the sort of that 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 recessions sort of that that the recovery is the inverse of the depth of a recession. That you the, far, the faster you go down. The, the quicker you, you rebound and what we were finding in the aftermath of the of the Great Recession is that we went down pretty quickly financial markets came back very very quickly but the real economy staggered back and and both in 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 the US and in in Europe we had um, extraordinarily weak productivity growth. Um, and and the question then, and this is, this is you know the argument that you know that people you know that people will will be burnt at the stake for is did did that <laughs> were the low interest rates a reflection of the lacklustre uh, productivity growth or did they in turn contribute and my uh, my thesis is. Um, you know, I think they probably did contribute. But as Hayek says, you know, there are no great experiments in economics and, you know, we're, you're dealing with a Petri dish which, you know, a thousand people have put their thumbs into. So it's, you know, it's very... <laughs> 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 not, <laughs> not. We're, we're, we're always going to have different opinions about these things. But I think it's a very rich vein, the, the allocation of capital and, and interest.
3: Let's let's talk about that that idea because you know I had kind of written down that as being really the animating idea behind really the the second two thirds of your book, which is that that low interest rates are they basically have a causal long term effect on the economy's performance, and you you quote Ben Bernanke I think at the beginning of that second third of the book where you say. Then the Bernanke is saying it's important to recognize that monetary policy of that what monetary policy affects is not the potential rate of growth, but rather the cyclical part. And really, I think what you're saying is that's not right. That low interest rates, particularly ultra low interest rates, um, have this kind of feedback effect on the economy and can actually impact, if not the you know, super long-term 50-year growth rates, certainly the growth rates that we kind of care about, 5, 10, 15 years, et cetera. And so I was hoping that we could go through some of the ways that, that you think that feedback mechanism operates. And perhaps we could start with just the basic one, which is savings, right? So the, I guess, conventional approach the conventional idea of low interest rates is you know when a recession comes when the economy slows people want to save more um and companies who are run by those same people also want to save more so they do that by investing less and then you get this kind of uh potential uh you know reinforcing the economic slowdown less economic activity so the idea is let's lower interest rates and that will uh, increase uh, spending and increase investment and you talk about that you know Maybe that works at at in some circumstances, but at ultra low rates, you could actually have people wanting to save more when interest rates well, are low. Can you can you explain that? that yes,
0: idea? I mean this. Um, yeah, the the well, <laughs> the the relationship between the role of interest in savings is is very important, and the the and I have a chapter and we. Elaborate in, there was this, in the 19th century uh, the, one of the early English economists Nassau Senior, first first professor of political economy at Oxford, talked about interest as the reward for abstinence and encouragement. <laughs> you need you need it, but it's also if you think about it, it's not just a reward for abstaining, but it's also a way of compounding your wealth or capital over time. So uh, if, um, I'm going to leave aside for the moment the question of whether a very low interest actually causes you to save more. But if the low interest um, actually slows the compounding of your wealth, then everything else being equal, you will have less consumption in the future. Now, that would be compounded uh, if the low interest also encourages you to take on more debt, and so I think you know when we you know the the first stage, I think we 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 came to realize that with the subprime crisis that that households you, know, you I mean it was not just a U.S. Uh, phenomenon, uh, you know U.S. Uh, I think private sector debt increased by about 50% of GDP in the decade up to 2006/7 and that was um British household debt roughly the same order increase uh, Spanish and Irish on the periphery of Europe uh, much greater and Iceland <laughs> off the charts and and the, these were levels of uh, of of, uh, of private debt increases were uh, either in the US case roughly on par with Japan uh, at the end of its bubble economy period uh, and in the case of Spain and Ireland much worse than Japan now and um, uh, you you know you're aware of Richard Koo the Nomura economist uh came out with this thesis called the 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 balance sheet recession mm-hmm. the idea that after a uh, after a boom period you you have your your balance sheet is is out of order. It's a sort of mint. You could say it's a sort. Of, it's a sort of Minskyan, Keynesian idea in a way. Um, you know, you've got too much debt <laughs> relative to your income, and you need to um, improve your balance sheet in order to get. And and that is going to be a drag on demand. So and so, there there is one of your ways in which the low rate uh, encourages a lack of savings and a buildup of private sector debt. That when um, you know. When you get to a sort of turning point, then you uh, find that consumption going forward uh, is is lower than it would have been uh, otherwise. So, so that that that's um, that's one area, you know, one one pretty pretty um, clear area in which the build up of debt and the lack of savings lower lower the um, lower f- forward consumption. And that 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 was also underlined in a in a book um, called The House of Debt by. Uh, to American economists, uh, yep. I think they're called Mian and Sufi. That's and, right, and they, I think, I think they show in that book um, that you know in the counties in the U.S. that had the biggest buildup of debt, um, that they were also uh, household debt in the period prior to the GFC. They had the biggest uh, dinks to consumption going forward. Now, and this this is an area where you see the asset price bubble, uh, in in this case. Prior to 2006 7 in US real estate, uh, being associated also with dissaving and the, and the accumulation of debt. So in that case, you, the, you can see the interest working twofold. Uh, one, to encourage the asset price bubble, and, and two, to encourage households to take on more debt. And in that case, it was, um, as you know, it was the American households in aggregate taking out $500 billion a year in mortgage equity withdrawal uh, or, um, to, to to boost their consumption. So we've got low interest rates in, in that
3: explanation, um, f- encouraging taking on a debt, which ultimately leads to lower consumption when the, the bubble bursts in balance sheets need to be repaired. So it's a, it's a kind of lowering future consumption. And there's also an argument that it lowers current consumption in the sense that you kind of have this Long-term goal in mind of how much money you say you need to retire, and with interest rates at zero or one or something very low, then you you kind of need to save more. And, and that, that, that's it's, another it's, argument. Do you?
0: No, no, no. I, I think I mean that's quite right. But I and I do mention this. But I think one one again, and one perhaps one of the problems with economics is the assumption that uh, that every that every nation, every every person in the world responds. In exactly the same way to to the same you know economic factor, and as I point out in the book, um, that in in the U.S. um, there's greater exposure to um, households have greater exposure to real estate because they tend to be high levels of household ownership and more exposure to the stock market. Whether direct or through pensions, whereas in Germany there are more rate, more more people rent, and actually German German households keep more of their assets um, in, in cash, and so or or short or bonds, and they so I think what we see is that the Germans uh, actually felt the pain of the negative. Uh, interest rates uh, much more um, um, not oh, oh, well of low and then negative interest rates in the last decade much more than the Anglo Saxons because the Anglo Saxons said hey you know I'm not getting any money in, <laughs> in my bank again but my house is going up ten percent and my equities have gone up fifteen percent so who cares if I can't you know if, if my if my uh, if if bond yields are low so so uh, and interest rates are low so I think there was a a, a slightly different response, uh, depending on on you know on where you were, and again back to the composition of your personal balance sheet. So,
3: kind of a cultural difference in the in the uh, willingness to tolerate abstinence, I guess. The uh, the Anglo Saxons aren't uh, <laughs> we feel that abstinence pain a little more maybe than the than the Germans. I, I wanted to talk about just a segue a little bit and you talked about different responses in it, you know, depending on the country and the culture. And, um, another way that you talk about, which I think is quite important and, um, not something that I always think about with low interest rates is this notion of zombification or zombie companies. And, you know, you say that if you look at you know, what happened say after the Euro debt crisis and the insolvency rates, um, actually the lowest insolvency rates were in Greece, Italy, Spain, places where one might have expected, <laughs> you know, um, higher, higher insolvency rates. Um, and that, you know, you, you talk about companies being allowed to, because of low interest rates kind of can to continue to limp along. And I-, I wondered if you could just explain that process, but, but, Please explain why that matters in terms of the feedback loop of low interest rates begetting continued low interest rates and then continued slow economic growth. Because that's really what we're what we're worried about here.
0: Well, the the, the zombie uh, corporate phenomenon was um, was really. Well, it was actually first identified with the savings and loans associations, the thrifts. That got into trouble in the 1980s, but as as a sort of widespread phenomenon, it it, it was um, it was described uh, in 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 Japan in the 1990s. And if you remember, um, there was a lot of a lot of criticism of the Japanese authorities for allowing the banking system to uh, to engage in what was called, you know, loan for, forbearance of 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 allowing. Uh, Companies that had too much debt, uh, that had too little, you know, too low returns on capital, uh, they were allowed to stay in business. Um, but then, <laughs> if you think about it, Japan was also the first the first country to experience, you know, to, in, to introduce the zero interest rate policy, ZERP. And um, that, you know, ultra low and zero interest rates are themselves a policy of loan for forbearance. Um, now, you let's you know you fast forward fifteen years, and and various uh, you know international you know bodies such as the OECD and the Bank for International Settlements start putting out some quite interesting papers on the zombie phenomenon, and they note, as you say, that um, in countries that had you know the most uh, severe financial sovereign debt crisis are, are you know in 2010 2011 such as as italy and greece um they they those were the economies that that one um that probably needed um you know a shot in the arm and the reallocation of resources uh instead um once the ecb got around to sort of promising to do whatever it takes once it once once the markets and the banks and the governments realised that the ECB had their backs, so to speak. Uh, there was a policy of loan forbearance, and then the the OECD, I mean, so policy of loan forbearance instituted through the uh, ver- through the very low interest rates. And then what the OECD and the Bank for International Settlement economists looked at is they said, well, they found that you know it, that in, that sectors that were full of, of zombie. The companies that the, that the more efficient companies ended up paying higher interest rates than they would have done. Otherwise, that there was less uh, job creation, there was less investment, and so forth. Now, and if you're getting less investment, less job, uh, and less less new entry, so not only were firms not leaving the industry, uh, but the but the corollary of that was that fewer there were fewer new entrants. So this goes back to the sort of Schumpeterian. Creative destruction. So you can see that the sort of uh, that that the um, I would describe it in large measure uh, to that the that the policy, the loan forbearance aspect of 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 zero interest rates. It was was actually uh, create, contributing to the zombie phenomenon, and the zombie phenomenon was in turn contributing to 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 low returns on capital and declining and stagnant productivity. So there you get this low rates begetting low growth and low growth begetting lower rates, so to speak.
3: It's, it's interesting, just listening to that description, you start, you, you can almost think of these zombie com- companies as being state-sponsored entities in some ways, so, you know, kind of a, and if you're a new entrant, why do you want to go into compete against the government or a company that the government's, is, is you know, uh, has an interest in in keeping going. I, I, and there, as I was reading the book, it struck me that there maybe there's another type of zombie company out there that we hadn't that we don't call zombies. Uh, maybe we should call them white walkers or something, that, you know they 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 kind of should be dead, but they can they can kill you. and that that those are companies like um like Uber and we We work, which you talk about, which um you know, you'd think, well, how can Uber be a zombie? company because it's growing so fast, but you're, you talk a fair amount about it. And I, and I, I don't want to mischaracterize what you're saying. You you may not think of it as a zombie, but so I'm putting that question forward to you is companies like Uber that are, you know, unprofitable and, and where there's not a clear path to profitability, yet they're able to grow because of lower interest rates, ultra cheap capital. Do, do they have that same kind of feedback effect on on the
0: economy? Um, yeah I, mean, I think so I mean by the way I mean in in the chapter where I talk about you know the classic zombies, the tend to be you know, industrial firms uh, I I then segue into the the misallocation of capital in the tech sector uh, and argue that that is that, that, that yes that the unicorns, Not every unicorn. Unicorns are these companies with billion-dollar valuations that have yet to come to the market, and in most cases, have yet to turn a profit. And um, one of so so go back to what we were saying earlier about the 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 length of time in production. (laughs) Um, That if you have if if capital is sort of in effect free, um, it doesn't really matter how far in the distant future your profits uh, are going to be uh, you will encourage the most speculative investments and a, a, a highly speculative investment which never actually meets fruition um, doesn't actually um, you know is is in its way, is, is a form of misallocation of capital and that capital could have been used elsewhere I mean, I think in the case. I mean, I I mentioned I think Uber probably is quite a good case. I mention Uber in certain detail, and there, the interesting things about Uber. You, the, I probably don't say it in the book, but the because cost of borrowing and car leasing was so low, and anyone could go. You know. Too many Uber drivers, <laughs> and the the Uber drivers were earning an extraordinary low return. <laughs> Their own productivity was 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 low. As for Uber itself, it was you know blowing you know billions of dollars on you know autonomous cars and and you know Ill, you know flying taxis and stuff that you know was you know I mean if you know you have. If you hadn't been drinking Kool Aid in the boardroom, you might have thought that was um, that these were never going, these projects were never going to fly. So, so I, I don't I don't think that yeah I, I, I do I, I don't think that the um that that I mean it's very difficult to say, but I I would I, I don't think that a lot of the capital that went into Silicon Valley in this period is has actually been sort of productivity enhancing the too many sort of, if you will, pie in the sky ventures. Uh, and that then, again, links back to the high asset valuations that you get during periods of, you know, the speculative bubbles that, account, that accompany ultra low rates. You, you're you not really, you have to remember that the Silicon Valley businesses, they're not really created to generate, you know, useful, economic functions at some stage in the future. They are, they're purely uh, financial. I mean, I sounds a bit cynical, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying this having read, you know, the memoirs of people who actually work in Silicon Valley. They're, they're all, you know, as they say, it's all about s- solving for the capitalization rate. It's all about preparing for the IPO and so forth. They are very, you know, they're very much, you know, they're sort of casino chips, these businesses, uh, but they can, you know, suck in, uh, a lot of capital in the process, and again, again think of it. Everything is sort of related, and that why are people devoting a huge amount of money, uh, you know, pouring it into these tech ventures? Because in a time of very low interest rates, you need to sort of, you need to, um, you need to hit the ball, you know, out of the ballpark. Uh, so you ha- you go for the long shot bet, and because you know, markets have a sort of Ponzi scheme aspect to them. As long as, as long as other people were coming in after you, you you know you had this ramping up of pre-market valuations in Silicon Valley, um, that that was you know what was the sort of Ponzi scheme, and obviously fun while it lasted.
3: There's, I'm I'm going a little bit off kind of the script that I had thought about, but as you're talking about that, I was reminded of. Bill Janeway had a really interesting book uh, that he published about 10 years ago and one of the things he talks about is you know there there may be some long-term benefits to bubbles because if low interest rates or bubbles generate a lot of investment um and i'm thinking here particularly about say the telecoms boom in the late 1990s early 2000s the, the yeah the companies go out of business but we still have the fiber optic cable that they laid underneath the pacific ocean and the society benefits from that infrastructure investment that is facilitated by the ultra cheap capital in the bubble etc so um I wanted to ask you the extent to which you agree with that. Now, it sounds like just in that last answer, you're saying, well, the the kind of investment we've seen fueled by ultra cheap capital recently hasn't been laying fiber optic cable underneath the oceans. It's been more, um, you know, kind of, I don't know, focused on rent seeking or consumption. And therefore, there isn't that tangible capital base that we're left over with after the bubble that might benefit us.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I have thought about this, this question over the years. You know, British had, in Devil Take the Highmost, I talk about the British railway mania of the 1840s, uh, when the you know, amount, huge amount of new railway, rail track was authorised. And it seems that the result of that was, uh, there were too many uh, um, sort of poorly designed, rail routes, um, sometimes competing. And it, it permanently, it seemed to permanently lower the return on capital of the UK rail system. In the case of the um, the dot-com fibre optics, um, if you remember, <laughs> they, that, uh, there was massive initial uh, oversupply. I think it was sort of they they talked about sort of dark fiber being sort of 95% of the fiber optic cable was not being utilized, uh, in, in that it it did, the slack got picked up, um, a bit, a few years later, as far as I understand. Um, but really in so, in so far there is a benefit. There is a sort of transfer of wealth from the investor to the consumer. Um, the consumer i mean ideally in let's say in a sort of balanced economy the investor should be doing something that is useful uh you know in, investing in a business that provides some utility to consumers and that both both parties should get something from it that and the consumer should pay enough to deliver a return on, a positive return on capital for the investor so it, 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 when one in the case of uh, of all those telecoms companies uh, in Britain, they were called alt nets and so on. Uh, when they went, you know, went down to zero, uh, it's probably not an efficient allocation of capital for society as a whole, even if the consumers end up with some benefit. Does does that? I think that's a sort of more judicious views and the sort of hey bubbles are fun and uh, afterwards we get all this great stuff <laughs>
3: okay now i you know i i just remember reading that and and you know i was like when someone's presenting the, uh, the you know the flip side of an argument and um i i don't think i'm a good enough economist or historian to really have a firm answer but i um i could see that particularly because i lived through the telecoms Bust, um, lost a little bit of money on a few telecom companies that are no, <laughs> no longer around. But then, you know, we, we're here having this conversation that's being facilitated by technology investment. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure how I come down on that one. I I well, wanted, Kevin, let me stop. Yeah, I'll please. stop
0: you. So yes. I'll go back, give you another case in the railway mania, Britain, which is quite interesting, is that the railway, the leading figure of the, of the British railway mania was um a guy um, called Hudson out of York and he they operated on a on us on up in York on a narrow track railway and as he took over all the other railways they moved everything to the narrow track the narrow track actually turns out to be very inefficient so it was sort of it was as if during the sort of takeover mania that accompanied the railway boom we were actually sort of we were actually put on to the wrong railway system which you know if you ever take a train in england you're sort of huddled together in a narrow carriage and i don't say you know the trains don't carry as much freight and so on so that was a case where not only am i saying you get you get the wrong you know too much capital invested but you also actually end up with a sort of suboptimal rail system you know railway technology so so uh, you know uh there is a case for sort of for doing, th- there is a case for, for investing rationally. <laughs> uh, and if you, <laughs> if you invest rationally, crazy as yeah, that sounds, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're likely to satisfy all par- parties, I think.
3: Um, let, let's talk about just a, one or two more examples, kind of subtle examples of, again, trying to keep on this theme of how the unintended longer term consequences of low interest rates. And um, one that I hadn't really thought about made a lot of sense once you explained it was a kind of what you, I think you might call it a globalization bubble, how low interest rates facilitated the existence of quite complex uh, global supply chains. And that, that kind of in the short term is good in the sense that you know you a lot you basically can get things produced at, you know where labor is the cheapest um which reinforces the low inflation which keeps interest rates low etc but it also creates this sort of fragility which obviously we're experiencing um now um and means that you know potentially when interest rates are higher then those those um you know maintaining those those supply chains are not so easy could you explain that
0: um yeah i can try the the <laughs> the so the relationship between interest and 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 you know what we call globalization is is um is interesting and and, and the first phase of globalization second half uh, deemed to be sort of second half of the nineteenth century up up to just before the first world war was uh, associated with declining interest rates or very, very uh, long uh, there was basically I'm talking roughly uh, you know, from 1850 to 1900 in the US and and, and the UK a, a very long uh, bull market in bonds of falling long term rates uh, and at the same time this was a period of, of, um, of sort of rampant globalization and there does seem to be uh, a link between them in that uh, the more we trade with the rest of the world and access cheap labor in the rest of the world the uh, the more um, the cheaper the, the there will be a sort of disinflationary or, or deflationary impact on, on the cost of traded goods and there will be a dampening of the bargaining power of the domestic labor force. And that combination of weak bargaining power uh, and falling traded goods prices induces both, induces a a decline in the interest rate. So there is a sort but so, and then I, so that's a 19th century example. And then you go back to more recent period where global trade is largely financed uh, in dollars. And these global supply chains are, in a, in fact, you know, they are they, funded, they're dollar funded, uh, by the sort of you know, the dollar being the global reserve currency, and so as the interest rates fell, as you had globalization, let's say, as you had a move towards globalization, that had a dampening effect on domestic uh, wage growth. And domestic interest and inflation and interest rates, that but that brings down the dollar, the, the cost of dollar funding. Hey, hey, it's much cheaper. To, to, so let's expand our our supply chain a tiny bit further. And and think of it this way: it goes back to you. Know, um, I was mentioning earlier the roundabout production methods, the, the amount of you know, tying up capital in a very long supply chain. Well, if, if the cost of funding that supply chain is very low, you're going to have a very long supply chain. But the longer you create the supply chain, the more potentially fragile it is to, um, well, to say, for instance, a, a rise in interest rates, but also to other fragilities of the type we've seen um, more recently, you know, the with the sort of COVID supply you know the covid pandemic supply shocks but also but then there's the other element which is that you have the political backlash against it suddenly you know the workers who haven't had a you know a decent pay rise for a decade or two suddenly think hey hang on a sec why are we why are they outsourcing all my jobs to the far end of the world and hey presto you get a man with Ginger hair, saying he's <laughs> going to keep, put, <laughs> get to solve all your problems. Say, so, but you see, you have to. I mean, the point is, one can try and analyze where the sort of source of the discontent comes from. And to some extent, that the you know, the, as I say, the linkage between globalization, low interest rates, and then the feedback into political discontent seems to be. I mean, I mean, you know, it's not provable, but it, you, it seems that you can observe something along those lines.
3: Yeah, it's 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 funny cuz it that's why I think economics is such a fascinating subject to study because it's you push in one area and and something else happens and it's a dynamic it's a social science it literally evolves with the society and it, one does feel I mean central bankers have been criticized a lot in your book and our book just generally but one does you know they have a hard task and you can see why they would say well (laughs) you know i'm just going to focus on inflation because all this other stuff is is too complicated and we had um andrew smithers on the show the last show and andrew's new book is about you know I, i think his hope is that eventually central bankers could get to the point where they could say hey i can't lower interest rates anymore because if i do I'm going to push other relationships out of whack. Now, he Andrew is talking about one particular relationship, which I know you're aware of, it's just the the Q ratio. But bro, more broadly speaking, what we're saying is that you know a narrow focus on on interest rates risks destabilizing other areas that oftentimes we don't even you know know until until you know further down the road that that we've destabilized. I, I think this globalization example is an excellent. One, in that sense of it, you know, it takes a bit of thought and, and almost ex-post observation to realize, oh, <laughs> we've created another set, uh, kind of aspect of fragility here.
0: Yeah, I mean, so one way of thinking of it is that the, the very low interest rates are like sort of fertilizer that, and they over fertilize the environment and lead to sort of, in a way, weak and fragile weak and fragile. Hmm. Ecosystem. I, 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 also dis, I also I discuss in the chapter on creative destruction, the uh, a metaphor that's quite commonly used of, of you know of preventing um, you know the, the how the central bankers when they prevent the process of creative destruction they're a bit like the U.S. Forest Service that prevents forest fires and in the end you get you know build up of understory and and so forth and until eventually you get more fires and more severe fires as as a consequence, and, and, and a less healthy forest. Um, the question of what central bankers should be doing is a sort of deep and complex one. Jim Grant refers to the interest rate as the universal price, the most important price in the capitalist system. And yeah, I really think it is an issue that we have to sort of think about if we are embracing a, uh, if we think we're living in a market economy and think that that is the type of economy that we want to live in, that do we want any body of people determining what the universal price is that affects everything else in the system? And if so, if we do want a committee of people making that decision, how are they to be, Judged and what are they? What what are they? What inputs they going to have? And I I have um, I think I've I've long been of the view that the inflation mandate, the idea of just you know and particularly as inflation mandate then became a sort of narrow specific target, uh, was was uh, flawed and and that you know the, the the early criticisms of what was used to be called price stab, stabilization as the aim of of central banking, which was that that early criticism was was put forward by uh, Friedrich Hayek, who was a young economist uh, working actually at NYU, I think, on his uh, PhD in the in the 1920s. At the time when the Federal Reserve under Ben Strong uh, had adopted a policy of price stabilization, uh, was supported by really all, all all the leading economists of the day, Keynes. Uh, Rafe hawtrey was a sort of distinguished economist at the, uh, at, at the at the UK Treasury, uh, Gustav Castle, and you know, the greatest American economist of the 20th century, Irving Fisher. So, you know, the, the great and the good were in favour of price stability. And the experiment with price stability um, ended, you know, in 1929-30 with, you know, a great crash and depression and severe price instability. And that, that lesson... Uh, doesn't seem to have been learned. And you I mean, you mentioned earlier that um that Ben Bernanke uh is you know is a historian of the Great Depression. Well, you know, I don't want to be too harsh on, on Bernanke, but um he he doesn't he has a sort of very narrow, rather dogmatic interpretation of what occurred in the 1920s, um which is you know, pretty much borrowed from Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz's um, you know, monetary history of the United States, and in particular, their, you know, the famous chapter they wrote, which was then sort of published as a standalone book called The Great Contraction, with the idea that, you know, there was nothing wrong in the 1920s. Everything was going hunky-dory until the Fed tightened a tiny bit too much in in twenty eight, twenty nine, allowed a great allowed the stock market to collapse, and then you know allowed the money supply to collapse. So, um, so the the Bernanke, uh, reading of history uh, ignores and and even leaving aside Bernanke, so I don't know if you read it. The Alan Meltzer wrote you know written a sort of hefty two or three volume history of the uh, of the Federal Reserve, um, and he, he they all leave out the sort of the, the Hayekian criticism of the of the price stability policy of the nineteen of the nineteen twenties, which was one, which was a which was one, which was a, a sort of critique delivered in real time rather than an ex post one. And see, you know, as I mentioned in the book, it's sort of you know we we like to think that the sort of the vic, that history is written by the victors. And you could have said that sort of Hayek analytically was the sort of victor of that period, but you know, he just sort of didn't win the arguments in the nineteen thirties, so he's sort of he's been, he, he's he's been sort of airbrushed out of the histories, even though he you know he he won a Nobel Prize sort of forty five years later. Yeah, it's funny you mention how
3: deeply embedded the Friedman kind of view of the Great Depression was. I mean, the first business class I ever took, I think it was in high school. The, was taught by, you know, a high school business teacher in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, who was uh, believed in Milton Friedman. And I came home with a copy of Capitalism and Freedom at the age of sixteen and told my dad, "This is what I was learning in the business class." And he's like, "I thought you were going to learn how to, you know, what a balance sheet was, you know, <laughs> not what was going on with the money supply in the Great Depression." You talk about a, a bit it. Benjamin Strong who was the, the the president of the New York Fed in the 1920s and there's a quote from him where he basically in 1927 is saying hey look um, because i guess they were getting a lot of criticism for stoking a stock market bubble and he says it's not really our business what's going on with the stock market you know there's nothing we can do about that and even if we were worried about it we tried to sort of prick the bubble that it would have collateral effects and we you know that we couldn't control that and it really Echoed the way the Fed, I think, saw the saw the world post the two thousand eight crisis. Um, so it's a, kind of another example of not really pulling the full lessons from history. But
0: it, well, no, what? Kevin, hang on a second. We the, can go back earlier. The, okay, the same view was held in in the in the late nineties during the dot com bubble. And in fact, that was the time. That was the Alan yeah, Greenspan, we'll clean up afterwards view. Exactly. And that was, um, and that was actually, um, Bernanke wrote a, a paper, which I think was sort of 98, 99, on that, you know, don't, with, with someone called Mark Gertler, which was, you know, don't, don't deal with the aftermath of bubbles, don't try and, don't try and, you know, lean into the wind or whatever they call it. And, uh, it might, I mean, I have this sort of, I don't know, my, my guess is that that's sort of why Bernanke was brought into the Fed to sort of uh, buttress the, the the de facto, um, you know, given a sort of, if you will, an ideological gloss on the de facto position of the Fed. And then, you know, they, having done it then, um, you know, let the dot-com bubble go to its extremes. They then, you know, tried to clear it up and they Sort of got into a mess again, and then they did it a third time. There, there is, it reminds me of, you know, there is a, a, a nursery rhyme that the English school children used to learn, which was, there was a, I don't know if the Americans know, there, there was an old lady who swallowed a fly. Do, do you know that so there was an old lady who swallowed a fly? I don't know why she swallowed a fly, and then it goes on. She she swallowed a spider to ca- to catch the oh, fly, right. and then she swallows a bird to catch the spider to catch it, and <laughs> eventually she swallows a horse. And it goes. She's dead. It ends with she's dead. Of course, so, you, know, the, you just you just sort of follow. You just you, you sort of build up a bigger problem to solve the problem that you were dealing with in the um previously and and i, I think that i mean i have been at that you know i i've been of that view sort of nursery rhyme view for almost 20 years and, and actually it's sort of i'm like if i if i felt i had grounds to change it i wouldn't i i would have done but but I, it do, it does seem we, we sort of build up we you know this the Fed policy of of sort of trying to clear up afterwards and then not really being cognizant of the unintended consequences of the clear up gets you into a um, you know what one might call a sort of deeper state of disequilibrium than you would you would have been otherwise.
3: Yeah, and that that's kind of a the major theme that runs through the rise of carry is this kind of ratchet effect where each intervention encourages carry trades to grow encourages fragility debt to grow and then the next intervention has to be bigger and bigger um i guess a little disturbing that um you know 2 or 3 years of work can be summarized in a nursery rhyme but uh, there you go um so we i think we've got we have got to kind of um wrap it up and I, I you had a quote in the book along the lines of you know we can capital is the discounted value of future interests or for future income. Um, so capital is the is discounted value, future income. And to, to do that calculation, we need interest. And if interest rates are at zero, then there's no capital. And if there's no capital, there's, <laughs> you know, there's no capitalism. So t- is it, that serious in your mind is this policy of zero interest rates? And I know we we've moved away from it at least temporarily, but w- it, was it a genuine threat to capitalism in your view? Is that how you saw it
0: or see it? Um yeah, I I mean I I suppose I would have written that if I <laughs> if I'd been insincere <laughs> about it. No, I, I I I I had this last sort of concluding chapter where I I call it the new road to serfdom because it draws on Hayek's uh, book, *The Road to Serfdom*, written in, in I think 1943. And Hayek there is just talking about sort of wartime controls, and he has this sort of fear that these wartime controls, once in place, will never be, will never be removed, and would you know one thing will lead to another, and would we'll sort of all end up in a, a sort of, um, sort of quasi you know socialist state. Uh, and, but Hayek, as we've been talking about earlier, also had these sort of views about, he had probably of all the economists, he had the sort of deeper, all the great economists, he had the sort of deepest views, both about interest, but also how, you know, uh, 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 how knowledge and information is, is decentralised in, in, a, in a society, in which is why one needs the market system to sort of, um, to, to to market prices in order to coordinate activity. And, um, in in the last chapter, I I tried to point out that in the if you have interest rates going lower and lower and the and the system malfunctioning and malfunctioning both due to um, low you know low productivity low investment low savings um, and the financial fragility that you've written about then you require greater and greater state intervention. To, to um, offset this, and this is sort of really what we've seen with the central banks. Not just you know they did you know not just taking interest rates to z- to zero or negative in some places, but and not just you know buying government bonds, but then sort of intervening in the credit markets, and then you know more recently getting into you know sort of feeling they had to have a, a say about um, you know. Uh, you know, green investment or, you know, decarbonisation. So it was a sort of a, um, a sort of creeping um, advance of, of of what you might call sort of central bank, uh, central bank capitalism. And, and, you know, i perhaps, you know, I think that I suppose the whole magic, you know, modern monetary theory is sort of has, has been put at the side for the moment. But, If you want a capitalist system to work, um, it's one in which it has to deliver, as Hayek says, it has to deliver productivity growth and economic growth in order to, and it has to be a system in which uh, ordinary people who are not, uh, who don't have great advantages in their life to begin with, can accumulate uh, capital, buy houses, and save for retirement, so people have to have a sort of a stake in the society and the zero interest rates by making retirement savings difficult almost impossible uh, or it's actually as 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 Jamie my 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 assistant your your co-author says that, that the low interest rates made the price of security more expensive, it pushed the security. Whether it was your retirement security, whether it was your house, whether it was the cost of your education, so security becomes more expensive and out of reach for many people. And then the people, you know, once that happens, they don't. fewer and fewer people support the system, and then the system is likely to atrophy. So, so the it, it sort of corroded from from within, I, I would say.
3: Well, I I very much appreciate that that summary. And, and uh, I would say, you know, what I've tried to do is direct the conversation to some of the unintended consequences that we might not all have thought about of low interest rates. And people may or may not agree with it, but I'd say, you know, pick up the book, read them, think it through. And, and make up your own mind. The the book is called uh, The Price of Time, and um, thank you for your time, uh, Edward. We really appreciate it, and uh, we wish you all the best.
0: Thanks, Kevin. I speak to you.
2: Okay, with that, I'll pass it back over to Niels. Thank you very much, Kevin and Edward, for a very insightful conversation on the topic of the price of time and money. Edward is really a wealth of fascinating historical references, and has a wonderful way of putting them into a narrative that is easily accessible. And as we learned today, he can even put central bank policies into old nursery rhymes. I must say that his view that zero interest rate policies really is a threat to capitalism was very interesting, as well as how he ties together the unintended consequences of low interest rates with globalization and the fragility that we see today in the global supply chains make sure you go and follow edwards and kevin's work as well as getting a copy of the books because as you can tell from today's conversation some of these ideas and topics are not being discussed enough on mainstream media from kevin and me thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode and in the meantime take care of yourself and take care of each other